<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Happy Friday. It is April 23rd. We are still in the middle of a pandemic. Hoping to get to the end of the tunnel here. The light is out there. Joining us today in studio is Mara Carabello from the Xoro Group. And John Dougal is in here instead of Greg Hughes today. We'd had enough of him last week. The state <laughs> auditor apparently has time in his day to just come hang out and play. All right. Great to be with you. Thanks well, for I, hanging out. I didn't out. know this was a paid gig, but I got in here. There's a little penny right here. And Frugal Dougal will keep that, right? There you go. <laughs> if you save them up, a penny saved is a penny earned. That's right. Well, this week, uh, the headlines keep coming fast and furious. This already seems like weeks ago, but the Derek Chauvin uh, trial has been over. He was found guilty on all three counts. Sentencing doesn't happen for eight weeks. Mara, let's start with you on this. Were you surprised by the verdicts, or were you expecting this to happen and everything's gone smoothly in your brain as to what you thought? You know, I think I joined most of us with just the level of anticipation. You didn't even know, you you didn't go there, you just anticipated. And for me, I felt what uh, I sensed a lot of people did, which is a level of relief. I think it was a measure of justice, and I certainly think there was accountability there that um, many people felt really good about. Uh, I think it is just a first step. I think it's a building block. I think... Um, Many of us are already there. I mean, the state legislature took some courses of action. I think that one of the changes I think we need to make as we look at um, how to not have this happen, I mean, and we saw that there was just another killing the same day, which was was, was a hard thing to reconcile with um, the verdict being positive but also still seeing some trouble is we're still in the um, – we're still looking at prevent and post, right? Mm-hmm. So something happens and we're like, how can we punish or how can we hold accountable? And those are important discussions to have. How do you hold someone accountable? I still think we need to back back out on law enforcement and say, what's the relationship we have with law enforcement and how do we prevent these things from happening? So examples of that are we good data collection really does matter and making that data public matters. And um, looking at issues about how police are spending their time, for example, much of the violence and the deaths that we have seen are byproducts of things like parking tickets and traffic stops. And not, so is not the violent kind of right? And so turn into violent. Is that so? Why aren't we need to look a little more at law enforcement protocols? I would say I think law enforcement wants to look more. I don't think this is being something done to them. I think this is being done some something with them. So as some of the solutions that I think may feel good, which are about a post event and how one holds someone accountable. I also think we have to start looking at policies that talk about where do we want our police officers and what do we want them engaged in and how do we just stop it from happening in the first place? Yeah, it's a tough question. Uh, John, where were you? Were you expecting that to happen? I think we were all waiting with bated breath and wondering, you know, if there was going to be protests, if there were going to be demonstrations, if it was going to get violent again. It obviously didn't, and we're all thankful for that. I'll admit I thought it was going to be a split decision. Guilty on one or two charges, not guilty on one or two charges, you know, that type of thing. Um, clearly, it was a troubling event, um, but I think one of the other things that's troubling is I think 
you know, I heard an interview from one of the alternate jurors who was afraid of the riots that might come if they exonerated the officer. And so that calls into question a little bit some played of the dynamics. Played into their mind. Played into some, at least her mind. I don't know how many others it played in. But that was clearly a concern. Um, Mar is absolutely right. I th- you know, when the legislature this past session, they, did, they took uh, action to collect better data about what's going on with violent interactions and other things like that, they put in place some better standards or required post to put in place some better standards, more training for officers, and then higher discipline for certain behaviors, for lying, for certain violent interactions and so forth. And one of the things when it came to training was how to deal with individuals that have mental health issues or somewhere on the autism spectrum. But Mara's correct in the sense of, I think they failed to address why are so many nonviolent interactions turning violent? And how do we reduce and minimize? And when you hear about somebody you know, possibly passing uh, a bogus $20 bill. That's not a violent action. How do we engage smarter in that type of activity? Somebody with an expired license plate, somebody with, uh, what is it, an air fresher hanging off a mirror, those type of things. Why did they turn into such a violent result? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of questions. I'm hoping that this is pushing us in the right direction where we're asking the right questions and we're really understanding we're not going to stop all violent interactions with police. Some people, I mean, they go into it wanting to fight with a police officer, but I don't think any police officer, at least no police officer I've ever met, goes to work thinking I'm going to shoot someone today or I'm going to do something that I shouldn't. But I think giving them uh, all the tools they need as we move forward and also I think looking at some of our societal problems that are at the root of where a lot of this comes from, I just think there's many different little aspects in our society that we have to fix to make some of these things go away. But hopefully uh, we're headed in the right direction. So good news there. Uh, Good news on the vaccine front. Overall, here in Utah, switching gears here, here in Utah, our case counts are, if not still going down, staying fairly steady, although we're seeing across the country the numbers going up. So the question that a lot of people have been talking about, and the governor was talking about this week at the weekly briefing, was the slowdown. Apparently, we're seeing a major slowdown in how many people want the vaccines about three to four weeks ahead of what they were actually thinking. So there's a ton of questions that go into play here. When I look at this, I think, okay, all the people who are 90, 80, 70, 60, those were probably the ones who are going to have the highest percentage, they're most at risk, get the vaccine. The question is, what happens next? John, do you think this is a reticence where people just don't want to get vaccinated or are there lots of people who've had COVID and don't want it? What do you see happening? So I'm hearing a couple of different things. Clearly folks that want it, but they're running into scheduling issues. They thought, hey, I can just walk in, I can just get it. And that's not really the case. I was talking to somebody that lives in Salt Lake County who said, I'm going down to Utah County to get a shot because it's easier to get it scheduled down there. I think with the J&J dynamics, there's some folks that are now much more reluctant. You know, folks are saying, hey, it's safe, it's safe, it's safe. And all of a sudden it's like, Maybe it's not. And then they were saying, oh, we can start giving it again, but hey, we're still going to have this panel that's having this meeting today. And so folks are reluctant, I think, taking place. And then there's others that are clearly um, either anti-vaccine or definitely in the camp of, I'm just going to wait and see. I'm going to give it many months, maybe a year or two, and just let it play out and see what happens. And um, from people around you, is there any one thing that's sticking out to you of whether they're choosing or not choosing to get vaccinated? Um, Right now, no. I mean, it seems to be a, a multiplicity of, of actions. But recently, it seems to be a little more of, okay, what's going on with the J&J, and is it really safe? What's, 
Maybe yeah. there's something they haven't told me. There is a little bit more of that. And the CDC did meet today um, to discuss the cases. There's actually one new case that was added yesterday. An Oregon woman who was about 50 years old, I believe, died from blood clots that was not one of the original six. So I'm sure they're taking a lot of data in to look at right now, trying to make some decisions. I don't, I'm checking Twitter as we're talking here, and I don't see that they've made a decision just yet. They haven't said when they would. Mara, what are you hearing in your circles, and what are you thinking about the slowdown? So I read a great behavioral scientist uh, who was opining about this this last week, and I really appreciated her point of view. And she said, listen, we're not behaving markedly different with um, our action than we do with other actions. So her point was, those of us who rushed out and got it right away were sort of those that are queuing in line for the new iPhone. I mean, you're engaged. It's something you care about. You're an early adopter. You're an early adopter. You are there. And and, and there's lots of reasons that we were maybe there. But um, a lot of us got there really fast and were interested in going. And and then there's the, there is the small group that um, is anti-vax. And then there's a group that is sort of not sure about it from a medical point of view. But she reminded me that all of us were mostly in the middle and it was a matter of schedule and it was a matter of um, perceived ease of the thing. And she's like, you know, what what the agencies need to continue to do is to point out the how, like how to make it easy, how to do the drive-through. That it really wasn't so much a political stance that they were taking or um, a really... a philosophical stance that it was really a matter of schedule and ease. And so her caution, I mean, her point of view was like, don't start calling them anti something when maybe they're just doing as I, any given Friday and I tried to log on and I couldn't. So with a lot of us, you know, I click the link and if it doesn't happen, I'm three weeks before I click the link again. And I think we're going to start seeing innovative measures. I, along with probably many listeners was interested that um, my daughter's high school is offering it at the high school next week. And I thought, oh, that that, I, that was an unexpected, you know, and that was with, with Salt Lake County Health Department. But her point was... Do you get school credit for it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you get extra credit. No, that. Um, but, you know, her point was... In, instead of immediately attributing a political point of view, maybe it's a byproduct of, of schedule and ease and perception. Yeah. Of, yeah. And I don't really think of health decisions or vaccines as a political right. stand. When I talk to people who've gotten their vaccine or haven't, I think they come from, you know, varying... Uh, ideologies. I do think it's important that we realize that people might be hesitant. It's not a fully approved vaccine. Uh, There are questions. People are looking at the J&J. And we will look overall at the flu vaccine. Flu, obviously a different virus, a different situation. But only about 40% of adults get the flu vaccine every year. So there's 60% who are like, you know what, I'll take my chances. I might get it every 10 years. So there's definitely, you know, different ways of looking at it. And one thing that I think is interesting, and I wish we talked more about, I'm guessing the reason why we don't is because they want everyone to get vaccinated. But we're not talking about the herd immunity in all of the numbers. Herd immunity, when you look at the basic definition, is anyone who has gotten the wild virus or also been vaccinated. The question with coronavirus is, how long does it last with the virus and how long does it last with the vaccine? And the most recent study I could find showed that 95% of the people um, had at least three out of five immune system components or markers that still recognize SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 up to eight months afterwards. So if we're looking at that, it would be nice when we're looking at overall immunity and how many we have in our herd right now, if we could include the numbers of people who've gotten sick. And they say that we have about 400,000 in the state. There could be as many as 10 times more who've had it. The big question is, though, how do you count those numbers? Because I don't think they're tracking who's had vaccines and also had it or the difference in numbers. So there might be some 
gray area where we never really know. Well, my mom called me a couple of days ago. She had COVID. She's going, well, why are they telling me to get a vaccine? Because I already had it. Yeah. So, so she doesn't quite understand some of those dynamics. And, you know, we're at the point where we are going to live with it. We're going to live with this or the next version and this this virus in some way, shape, or form has been around for a while. And so I think the big test for us collectively is are we living with it, right? Are most of us thriving in it? And can you survive it? And do we have the medical support that we need? And it's not a matter perhaps of eradicating or never having that discussion to your point of what is herd immunity is largely just having a disease that is not at a pandemic level. Yes. And a lot of people are looking at their, you know, risk levels and what's riskier for them. So we'll keep a close eye on that. I know that um, people are still signing up to get their vaccines, but definitely not in the numbers they're hoping. So we'll check back next week. Uh, Another issue that I actually didn't think was going to get much traction this year, but ranked choice voting. Salt Lake City actually voted this week six to one in favor of using it during their municipal election in the fall. North Logan, Hyde Park, I think, are considering it. Draper already gave the okay. I don't know if any other cities or municipalities have so far. I think, there's, I think there's Lehigh, Springville. I think there's various others in Utah County. The Vineyard did it last time and stuff like that. Yeah. So. so the interesting thing is, is that we've adopted this now in some cities. There's going to be, I think, have to be a major campaign to educate people on how this works. John, are you in favor of this? If When you're running for office, do you want rate choice voting? Or someone who runs, you're thinking, get me out of here. I want a regular, average, everyday, yes or no election. So the funny thing is, um, I actually pushed... Uh, IRB or ranked choice voting back when I was in the legislature. So we're talking about 15 years ago. Didn't get to the point of a bill, but was trying to talk with folks from the League of Cities and Towns about the concept of, is this a way to streamline the elections to save some cost and, and to make it simpler for folks to just go to one election in November and vote? Uh, it was too early for folks to have that discussion. So from my perspective, I'm glad to kind of see it start to shake out. I understand how some folks may not fully understand it, um, I know how it maybe changes some of the games of elections and some of those dynamics. But from a uh, state perspective in the Republican Party, we've used ranked choice voting in our conventions multiple times in my history. And does it work or does anyone like throw something at the wall afterwards and be like, <laughs> ah, I was in first place. How did I lose? Um, you know, different people feel results different ways. But, you know, overall, we've, I guess, felt like it, it worked. It, it worked because it keeps going. Uh, Mara, is this an exciting thing for Utah? Oh, Weird concept. Where are you at on this? So, I one, I love that it's starting with municipal government. I think that's a great way to get your electorate used to it, and it's a great way to test it out because I think often in municipal elections there are multiple candidates, and there's subtle distinctions between them, not extreme distinctions between them. And, you know— And this is where where people put their choice. One, two, three, four. That's the ranked choice they're doing. Exactly. And so you have this ability to sort of like a couple people in some some instances. And again, I like it for local elections to get us used to it. What we see of most studies is the first cycle or the first year, maybe even the second, the voters don't, like, they're confused by it. They don't know if they did it right. And then there's this huge curve. So whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, there tends to be a huge curve in reporting back that they then really like it. And it's in part because they can be more nuanced about it. They don't have to choose among like-minded if they have a couple of candidates they feel like gosh I might get the kind of candidate I want there's an argument that's often made that it keeps out more of the extremes because you don't 
eliminate to sort of moderates in favor of an of, of a more polarized figure. Um, so so there's some philosophy there. It definitely for those of us who help on the backside of campaigns, it certainly changes things. But that's good. I mean, it's good to to shake up the political. So how does it change things back there? I guess I don't think about that side much. Does it, how does it change what you do with door knocking or what you do with your time? So this is in favor of the voter. So one of the things is usually you sort of look at the viability of every candidate and weigh against it. And now essentially it makes more candidates more viable, right? So if you are a, a person who's trying to draw a distinction, if you're a candidate and I'm trying to say, I'm trying to draw a distinction, now I've got two or three people who might be in play because it's not just me and the front runner. It's maybe me and a couple of front runners. And you you now have to put in contention. You probably have to start earlier. You probably have to think about your base um not being your base, if you will, people who are likely to vote for you might actually do two or three. The other really interesting strategy is I'm talking to your door and you say, hey, listen, I'm, I like John. I'm going for John. And I say, but Heidi, okay, great. Make John your number one. I'm now going to pitch you that I want to be your second choice. Mm -hmm. So I don't need you to throw out John. I just need to assure, I need to make sure I'm your number two. So there's now a lot of different ways to appeal to a voter. It's interesting. Will it cost more money for elections or will it cost less if you want to run? Will it make it so someone who doesn't have deep pockets can do more? I don't know. I'm I'm going to say it depends. And it really gets down to if you only have one election versus two, then you can save money in that process. Absolutely. Um, But also when it comes to the jurisdiction, for some jurisdictions like Copperton, they don't really have contested elections. So doing ranked choice voting, just running it as a town or a township, that's extra cost. Yeah. But if they had contested elections, it would likely reduce the cost. And so it's just one of those interesting dynamics. But it's, Mars absolutely correct. You start figuring out, okay, who's my second choice? Who's my third choice? Amy Winter Newton and I, when we ran last year as a governor, lieutenant governor team on the Republican side, in the first round or two, we were essentially tied with two other campaigns. But then, depending how the second, third, and fourth choices rolled up, we actually came in third in the whole convention. And it all depends what is the strategy and how those votes start shaking out on the second, third, and fourth rounds. It is amazing to see how that happens. And the two elections I really look at in recent history where I'm saying, you know what, it would have been nice and if people understood it and we had it, it would have helped. I think that when we look at the gubernatorial race, I think there were so many good candidates. Um, We had a deep field of candidates. And I think a lot of people, when you talk to them, they could put everyone in order of what order they like them. And then same with the Salt Lake City mayoral race. So it'll be interesting. We're not going to have a ton of races like that that happen all the time where you have so many great candidates. But I think it'll be interesting to see how it happens. I don't think my city is doing it, but I think we'll be watching to see how it works and see if it's something we can adopt. I think it's a good thing to have the discussion either way. Even if a city says, I didn't like it, what they learned about their uh, voters will be helpful. Well, and some of the parties, like Libertarian Party, they want something like this because right now, it really favors the two parties when we yeah. talk about the partisan elections. And here you can let the, the Libertarian Party, the Constitution Party, the Green Party, somebody can vote for them first and then vote, vote for one of the other candidates, second and third. And it might give them a chance to have a better showing than they currently see. Can we see that happening nationally in a presidential election where all of a sudden, if we wait a few years down the road and other states start adopting this, we could get to the point where there is a viable third-party candidate that could actually win? Or I think we're no. really on the front side of this. If you look a map at a map of the United States with ranked choice voting, we're really localized on it right now. Clearly, most of the state's approaches has been local, but I do think that that's the stepping stone to it. So I th- while I would say that's a few years away, um, ranked choice has become more and more popular over the years. 
All right, switching gears here. I want to talk a little bit about social media. We've talked about it over the last year, and the legislature tried to pass a bill in this last session that would hold some kind of accountability for Facebook and other social media sites, but it did not pass. Other states have been looking at the same. Right now, interestingly enough, though, uh, Senate President Stuart Adams, who serves on a commission, I guess you would call it, um, with it's the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, and it's a conservative group that proposes legislation that's sometimes adopted across the country. And he's really looking to see if they can get this group of conservative um, legislators to try to pass these bills, not because they think on their own they can make change, but collectively if enough of them made a big enough stink that social media would have to make at least stop and listen to them. Mara, uh, a lot of people are saying, just be quiet. Republicans are mad right now. You know, President Trump got, you know, ousted from Twitter. Some other conservatives have been blocked on Twitter. It really isn't an issue. We shouldn't talk about it. Is it an issue? Do Democrats have issue and reason to be concerned? When I look at this, I think, you know, you could get blocked and it's okay as long as it's something you don't care about or someone you don't care about. But then when it moves to something you care about that you want online or something you care about, all of a sudden it's an issue for you. So it seems to me it could be an issue for anyone. Well, I'm going to give you this like of three minds um, uh, answer because I, I, uh, the, it's such a complex issue. One of the things I'm worried about is that we roll it up into one thing. And I, I'm concerned about a few things. So what I'm most, I'm most concerned about free speech, I'm concerned about private sector being regulated by the government in a way that traditionally Americans have not stood for. So on an overarching philosophical thing, I think wow. free speech. I know. It's a, when the Democrats are saying it, when the left of center are saying it. So I'm worried about free speech. And I'm also um, worried about unintentional harm. And and that's because we all, I think, most of us believe something needs to be done in this space, but it's how and when and how we approach it. And I'm a little worried that there will be unintentionally harm done by um, a a very, Alec is very focused and very political. And I, and I say that as a compliment, I don't, but they have a political agenda. And I do think that this is in direct response to the Trump and the way that we're feeling. And I agree with you. I think today, yes, it's, it's the right and maybe tomorrow it's the left. And I don't think the legislation should be based on that. Now, here's where I'm of a different mind. It's intriguing to me, this notion that has been effective in the past, which is states proffer change, which they know is maybe unconstitutional. They actually know it's going to be enjoined by the, the courts, and that's why they do it. They do it to force the decision-making by the court process. There's some appeal to having some parts of social media discussed through our courts, but this is where my first do-no-harm comes in. I don't think we are ready. I don't think that the um, pondering that I saw the state legislature do I thought was off base and I don't think we have the expertise to address it. So I'm of many minds. I think it needs to be addressed. I don't think the federal government is addressing it. Um, I, but I'm worried that we have politicians addressing and not specialists. And I keep thinking about, we had a very heated discussion at my house about this, and we've figured out uh, speech to some degree, time, place, and manner in the real world. Now I've started to think this is speech in the virtual world. And they're not quite the same. And what's shouting fire in a theater 
what's the equivalent on social media? And should we collectively as a government regulate that? Or is social media, is our virtual world different? And is speech there? We know though the way we speak to each other on social media is different. People are big fat jerk faces big on social media. Big fat jerk faces and yeah. we've decided it's okay. So as you can see, I think this is I mean, really- your language there is just so vile. <laughs> Nobody wants to point at Heidi, but- <laughs> But I, so I guess what I'm saying is for me, it's too complicated to, um, I, I, I find it appealing that the states want to push the conversation, but I think they're using a blunt ox, uh, instrument right now. So I asked the question, if a state strategy is going to work, then have it be highly conceptual and set it up for a public discussion, which is what I'd like to see. Don't set it up for bad legislation. And I think that's the problem is none of us know how to solve it. I think we see it as a problem. And we talk about social media as sort of the town square now. Most of us don't go all hang outside and talk. It's where our exchange of ideas is. And if you choose one particular viewpoint or idea to get rid of and block or shadow ban, you know, is that a good idea? But they're also a private company. And so you're dealing with the free speech of a company and the free speech of people. I, as a person, I know that I'm going to see some junk online, but I prefer to see everything and weed through it myself. But I know that some people don't do a lot of weeding and they just consume it all and they don't know what's weeds and what's good for them. So it can be confusing. You've watched this process play out. Should the state be tackling this again? So I'm highly skeptical on this. I mean, as Mara said, what is the principle behind this? I get right now that Republicans are frustrated with, with Facebook, Twitter, and so forth because there's been various pressures on those companies to take certain actions. And those actions have actually, from my perspective, caused greater problems. And so now it's calling for, hey, let's have the government regulate this thing, which I think is going to cause even more problems down the road. And where the Republicans are feeling concerned is it does look like these social media companies have a democratic bias in terms of what's presented and what's filtered out and other things like that. You know, we talk about vaccines, we talk about masks, all that type of stuff. I hear folks talk about follow the science. Well, one of the dynamics of the scientific process is to question things, to analyze things, to debate certain things in a certain methodology. And yet... And science uh, is never final. It's, it's ever changing. It's, People it's, are learning and questioning. And, and we've been learning all yes. throughout this pandemic. And yet you've seen certain things that should be in the credible realm from my perspective, seem to get blocked or minimized in social media, which then calls into question, what is their agenda? What are they driving? And then when I hear companies like Facebook do advertisements to call for more regulation, what that says to me is this is a big established company that thinks that they can manipulate the regulation to their advantage and to block competitors that might challenge them, especially upstarts that don't exist yet. They're going to use that regulation, they're going to capture it, and they're going to use it as a tool to their advantage, and, and we're going to suffer as a result. Yeah. And I'm skeptical of that. It's something we have to think about, and I understand, you know, there's reasons to pull things off that are violent or encouraging people to do things that are violent, but you've got to decide, you know, is it okay to have this gray area, and who decides what goes and what doesn't? A couple months ago, I did a story about where to report vaccine side effects to the CDC website and VAERS. And there were people contacting me, telling me that they were blocked from social media, some of them for the day, sometimes a few days, and sometimes it was like a month. And I don't know if it's because of other things they posted or just specifically that, but it was concerning to me that this was viable information. We were driving them to even a government website. 
just all information from that and really giving people the tools to know if you do have an issue, this is where you report. And then all of a sudden that was getting blocked online. That's where the concern comes. Who decides what's okay and what's not? And so I think there's a lot of questions in how we go about this. I really don't know how to solve it. But I would like us to make categories of solve, right? I hate when we don't know the problem we're solving. I see a lot of good pieces of legislation they're good when you take them in, but you you ask yourself, what are you solving for in here? And that's when they get a little muddled. And I feel like one bill solving all of, quote, social media means we're going to do some harm. So what are we solving for? It's like for? the infrastructure bill. It's yeah. like too big. Just too big, break too much. What are, are we yeah. solving for, for speech? Are we solving? It's the great leveler. You know, I mean, people with the touting of social media is that a 13-year-old on TikTok can have as big of an audience as, you know, and the CDC do. can. Yes. And so it's the great leveler. What's, what's TikTok? What's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what's credible? What's not? Who gets to block? But you're also remember the individuals have opted into a private system. Right. Which no one thinks. I mean, you know, when you're talking to kids about why you get to look at their social media. Well, my answer to them is because if you want privacy, write in a journal, because if you think social media is personal, it belongs to you. It doesn't. So I just I I think we're not complex enough. I think the those in government who want to make change or make discussion in this area, we need to find two or three clear solves and allow us to solve for those in an effective way. I like that. If you want privacy, write in the journal, which is so true. I retweeted um, a local protester this week who was very upset that I retweeted them because they were saying some kind of interesting things. I'm not going to go into it right now, but they were like, I'm a private citizen. You can't. And I'm like, well, you're a private citizen publicly saying these things. Hence, I can retweet you because this was not your journal. We can all see it. We can see you. So it's an interesting argument. I'm going to be watching this one closely because I think a lot of people care about it. I don't know that... I've talked to a lot of people that know how to solve it, so I guess that's where we have to call in the experts who they are. I don't know. But uh, we will let those experts keep solving for us. If anyone has ideas, we'll uh, talk about them here. Uh, The Utah legislature created a privacy commission, and you know about this because you did an audit, John, um, after Banjo. And before we move Well, I know about it more because it's going to be staffed by my office. Ooh, exciting. So we got to talk background here first. Banjo, interestingly enough, a few years ago, I don't even know how many years Banjo was marketed to newsrooms, and it was kind of a way to use social media to show people what was happening. So if you did not have your pictures set on private mode is the best way I can describe it, and then you would tweet them on Facebook, or you tweet them on Twitter, or you post something on Facebook, we could type in, like, fire in Manaway. And anyone whose phone and pictures weren't on private, we could actually look for them. So instead of sending a photographer up there because we didn't have time to drive an hour and a half, we Mm -hmm. wanted to see what was happening, we could gather all the public photos of people who were posting pictures of this fire, and then we could use those on air. We used it for a couple of years. Eventually, it was a system that we we no longer used in the newsroom, and then all of a sudden, police departments were using it. John, tell us uh, where this went wrong. So what ended up happening is, for example, uh, within the states, the Department of Public Safety, Attorney General's Office, University of Utah, so forth, um, did an evaluation, chose Banjo, started to deploy that system. Then they hit a point in that deployment where it became public that the former CEO and founder of it had some questionable activity in terms of uh, racism and KKK and so forth in his background. That became very troubling, especially when you had this magnitude of potential information that was being analyzed as part of their uh, system. And, and it was pitched as, um, and I described this, um, it was a compelling law enforcement issue. If a child is kidnapped, society will pay just about any amount of money for a quick, safe recovery of that child. This Absolutely. is, 
And so, so all of a sudden you start getting into it. And uh, because of the brouhaha in the public, uh, the AG asked uh, me and my team to go evaluate the situation, especially when it came to privacy and algorithmic bias. Are there things built into the algorithms that have a certain bias unintended discriminatory against certain people of color or other things like that? And so we went in to look at it. Clearly, the contract had been terminated. Only part of the system existed when we, when we looked at it. And the key thing we identified was the system didn't actually have the artificial intelligence capabilities that were advertised, or at least it didn't exist in the system that we saw. It was wishful thinking. It was one of those things I described being an entrepreneur coming from the tech sector. You're pitching a vision of where you can get to, and you weren't yet there in terms of your development and deployment. And so, therefore, the risks were nowhere near what was anticipated because the system just didn't have those capabilities and stuff. And so we reported that back to the Attorney General's office. I had formed a commission as part of that effort, especially to help me look at issues of algorithmic bias. I think because of the success of that, and we put out various principles to government officials throughout the state to help them better understand these complex software systems and how to go about procuring them. And I think the legislature was watching this issue, appreciated how my team went about it. As a result, they codified and put in statute a 12-member privacy commission of different skill sets of folks, and then also require me to hire a privacy officer, state privacy officer, as well as the governor allowed him to hire a privacy officer so we can look at, uh, you know. So what are they going to do? Is this privacy officer going to invade my privacy? So it's looking at the government, and so it's looking at government action. So it's not getting into you personally. It's not getting into private companies, but it's looking at what data is the government collecting, how is the government using it? How is the government protecting it? What are the risks and helping better inform the legislative bodies, whether it's the city council, the state legislature, so forth, of here are the risks with different systems you have so they're better informed and then they can make better decisions whether they think that's an appropriate risk or whether they think certain government officials have overstepped with whatever actions they're doing. And here's the only amendment I would like to see to this Ooh, commission. An amendment. I know. I felt I'm like feeling guilty looking at John. So, I mean... Good logic. I, I will say it probably wouldn't have stopped the banjo deal, but that's okay. I don't think that, I think it should be not encumbered with their, their recommenders. So I think we should be clear that the body, the institution would still hire a vendor, which I think is appropriate. I think that's the way it should go. Sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the way it is. So I think there's smart people making these decisions and that's okay. The one amendment I would make is that I feel like, um, we have often the same people at the table when we put together these commissions. And there's a little bit of uh, government, a broad scope of governmental entities who form this commission, but nonetheless, they're still governmental entities. I would challenge the state to broaden the seats at the table, include the ACLU, who spends their time looking at civil liberties and will probably bring a very different perspective to the table. Um, I, had, I in, had somebody from the ACLU that was on my commission. And and it, But but the legislation does not no, no, no. encourage that. And it doesn't encourage outside advocacy groups, and the legislation marks that it is... Um, top performers, and I'm surely highly skilled people, but from the very agencies most likely to hire these. So again, I don't think so it's... the fox is I, watching the hen No, house. I don't think it's that, actually. I'm, I'm sort of not trying to imply that, but I am trying to imply I don't think it's the broadest perspective. And I also think that not inserting the private sector, the tech sector into this, not inserting the biotech sector, and not inserting advocacy groups who have a great deal of knowledge from their perspective on the public trust of safety and security. Because what you're evaluating evaluating is if the public is at risk, I think it's a huge miss to not have public seats at that table. And this is the challenge because I'm not a traditionalist. And so to my commission, seven of the nine, this was our first experience really in some type of governmental 
activity commission, anything like so that. So what can the people sit on to, this board? Um, it's going to be folks that have uh, law, law enforcement experience. It's tech sector experience. It's got uh, uh, privacy uh, policy or legal background, so forth. So it's a whole slew of different folks. I had two folks that were law enforcement background on my commission, but seven were different flavors of the tech sector and legal sector coming in to advise because I wanted to get folks from outside that echo chamber. Right, and I would just love to see that codified in legislation that there needed to be a certain amount of civilians on that. I just like that insertion. Instead of relying on good government folks who want to get that point of view, I'd like us to codify that it's really important we include advocates and members of the public when we're doing reviews. And how many people are paid right now to do this as a job? To do which? Privacy? Um, Yes, uh, not really anybody. Not really anybody. So there's no paid positions. Everyone's coming in there kind of so, as a consultant. So, so coming, in as, coming in as part of this, the commission is basically paid for travel and those type yeah. of expenses. That's it. The two full-time folks that are privacy officers, they would be full-time employees. And have they been hired yet? Not yet. I, I put out a, a job opening, job posting about a month ago. I've got various applicants. Next week, I'll start going through and, and thinning that from my perspective. What are the qualifications I need if I want to apply? <laughs> <laughs> just ask. Ask you for I'll, a friend. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just nip and go. I don't think you have them. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> if someone this goes is strong legal yes. experience dealing with privacy or strong tech experience dealing with privacy and a benefit if you've worked with you know, large groups, governmental entities, other things like that, dealing with, because for, for the privacy officer in my perspective, is going to have to deal with a thousand local governmental entities and reach out and educate and inform and survey what they're doing and things like that. It's a very complex kind of activity. And you've got to have an understanding of doing that. If you're used to working with a small team of 10, this is going to be overwhelming. Yeah. So the, you need someone who's a jack of all trades who really understands a lot. Yes. Interesting. And how many applicants? Is, is This is a new job. So did you get a ton of applicants or is it such a new job that people don't know it exists and they didn't I, apply? I'm going to say it hasn't fully bubbled up to me, so I'm not sure exactly how many applicants. I think we got at least 20. Uh, I'm not sure the total number. Interesting. All right. I'll be watching. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, it's been another exciting week in politics. John, thank you for coming in. You're so civilized compared to Greg. Don't so tell civil. him I, I said that. <laughs> he decided to dish us for a week. He's, this much way, more the, he's much more the brawler. He is a brawler. And John is one of our loyal listeners. So this week, you don't even have to listen to the podcast. We're right. here. So thank you so much for listening. Tell your friends about us. And look at us keeping it to 36 minutes this week. Nice. Now you have extra time to listen to another podcast. Thanks so much. And we will be back here next Friday, same time. Same place, same app.